Father, we're approaching your word, so we ask for your help and understanding exactly what um, you intended through Matthew. And as we look at the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that they would pierce our hearts afresh and remind us of what it means to serve him. We ask in Christ's name, amen. So we are still at this high point in Matthew's gospel where Peter makes this great declaration. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter didn't come up with that. Jesus said uh, that flesh and blood could not have revealed that to him. Just being Peter, uh, he would not have come up with that conclusion. Jesus said it was revealed to him by the Father. And Peter professed verbally and with full conviction what the Father had put in his heart. What a wonderful thing for a, a gracious God to grant understanding to a man. It's an amazing thing. What an incredible moment in Peter's life to be the instrument of expressing the highest of truths. And here we are 20 centuries later reading his words. Don't think this wonderful thing is only something that happens to Peter. It happens to us too when we come to confess Christ as Savior, as King, as Lord. It's God that works that reality by His grace in our hearts to allow us to confess Him that way. It's something God works in us. It's, it's actually a, a personal miracle that happens when we can honestly confess Christ as our Savior and our King and our God. It's the new birth. It's that spiritual resurrection of a dead heart to a living heart. And that living heart places its affections on the living God. And it changes us, doesn't it? Yes, sir. Does it change us like 100% right away? No, it takes some time. It takes some time. It certainly takes time for me. It doesn't completely change us, but um, it's important. It's a big change. The direction of our heart changes. It doesn't cure us of self-will right away or personal bias forever. I wish it did, but it doesn't. It, it does start this work though, and this work is ongoing. Sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes we conquer certain things in our lives right away and other things keep kind of coming back and we gotta fight them afresh and all of that. But it is the beginning of a change. It's not the end, but it's the beginning of a change. And I feel a little bad for Peter that his best day on earth was immediately tainted by his own foolishness. So, keeps him humble, I guess. But you know, the best thing that God was working in him, the foolish thing was Peter just being Peter. So those two things can be there on the same day, sometimes at the same event. And I think there's a lesson there for us. Most people know that the gospel stories... Um, if you know the gospel stories in a general sort of way, you know that, Jesus said, that Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You've probably heard that before. And you've probably also heard the expression, get thee behind me, Satan, right? That Jesus said to Peter. What a lot of people don't really realize is that they happened like one right after the other. So um, Jesus is comparing Peter to Satan like right after Peter gives this great confession of faith. So... You know, he didn't just blow it big time. He blew it big time right after Jesus gave him the keys of the kingdom. Yikes. So let's look at this story. Um, Peter's big mistake is his response 
to what Jesus says after that event, that it's the most sublime and wonderful of truths regarding Jesus' mission. And clearly Peter doesn't understand what it's all about, but these are the words of the man he had just proclaimed the Christ, the Son of the living God. So verse 21, Jesus says, from that, it says, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now notice the words from that time. So Jesus did not discuss in clear terms that his ministry would end in suffering and death until this day when by Peter's lips it was clearly established to the apostles exactly who Christ is. There had already been many, many indications about his divinity, his power, um, the forgiveness of sins, his authority, but now it's like plainly said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, um, and so here, starting at verse 21, we're hearing about what Christ was saying to his men. What he's, he's telling them, now that that's established, what is going to come? And he does not leave out the resurrection, but the apostles never seemed to pick up on the resurrection thing. Either they didn't understand it literally, or when he got to his suffering and death, they weren't listening anymore. Because he has to say this several times. But the thing that jumps out to them is the impending death of the Messiah, of Jesus, the, their master. So let's think now, what exactly is the responsibility of a disciple when the master, the son of God, tells them the future? What's their responsibility? To believe it, to accept it, right? What should they do with that information? Accept it. Ask questions, sure. Be shocked, fine. But their duty is to accept what he says because they know who he is. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I'm sure the apostles, as they traveled with Jesus, expected some difficulty to come. I mean, they were prepared for that. Jesus had made enemies of, well, all the powers that be actually were rather against him, and they knew that. They knew there could be pain and suffering ahead, I think, but they also had expectations concerning the Messiah. Their expectations weren't that different from the average Jew. They were waiting for the kingdom, and Jesus was going to bring in the kingdom. It didn't look like that at this time, but they figured, well, when he's done being all this like loving, peaceful, compassionate Messiah, it's going to come. He's the Messiah. Messiah was a winner. Messiah is a victor. And at some point, they expected him to exercise his divine power and establish the kingdom in their lifetimes. That's what they believed he would do. He certainly had not shown that much so far, which is why other people would have questioned it. And, and one of the reasons modern Jews question whether Jesus could have been the Messiah. But I think they expected a big change in the path of his ministry, and they were waiting for that. So Peter is like stunned. Jesus is talking about his dying and suffering at the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees. He, he really can't believe what he's hearing. Uh, the idea of Jesus suffering many things at the hands of the current leadership of Israel to the point of being killed, he can't bear it. So verse 22, he takes Jesus. He takes him. So he probably grabbed his arm and pulls him aside from the others. And it says he began to rebuke him. 
saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So he's rebuking Jesus, whom he had just declared the son of the living God. He's criticizing the son of God, correcting him. Good old Peter. <laughs> Mr. Impulsive. That was his middle name. Peter Impulsive Barjona. But uh, he speaks before he thinks, and that's a rather consistent portrayal of him in the New Testament. I mean, uh, he's impulsive. Sometimes it's kind of a heroic impulsiveness, like chopping that guy's ear off, you know, in the garden. Sometimes it's really foolish, and it's, sometimes it's in between all of those things. It's, uh, he's just always impulsive. Peter walks on water, and Peter sinks, right? Peter's motives in rebuking Jesus really have to be considered. I think he thought he was doing a good thing. I think he's expressing love for Jesus. And this is the very point where we have to be really careful. Because this shows up in so many ways in our lives where our love for somebody is actually our, our personal affection. Let me use that word. Our affection for somebody leads us to deny the truth to them or tell them something that isn't true or to believe something that isn't true. And that's really important. Love, real love, biblical love, has to be directed by the truth. The truth is first. Once that's established, love can, can work with the truth. People get really messed up when personal affection becomes the rule of life rather than the truth being the rule of life. You can think of a million examples of this. It, it, that's the kind of love that always takes the side of my child no matter how monstrous they are against whoever said they did something. That kind of love, you know? It's that kind of thing. They, they do it out of affection, right? Protection. That's sort of the, the thing that's in their heart, but they're denying truth and that is actually hurting their child. Or the love of the person who can't bring himself to acknowledge a serious problem when a, a preacher they like goes astray. This happens frequently. It's happening more frequently, unfortunately. Uh, but you know, I love him and he meant a lot to me in my past. So um, his rejection of scripture or his blatant sin or his abusing his flock, um, it can't be that bad. It's just not that bad because I like that person. You know, you can like a person and still say they've totally blown it. You could do that. He's still qualified in my eyes because he meant a lot to me once. That's a kind of love, it's a kind of affection that has not grounding in the truth. It's not wise. It's not a wise love. Truth always have to, has to be acknowledged and truth has to be held on to very tightly. True love always wants what's best for the one loved. So if you go back to the mother whose child never does anything wrong, they're not doing what's best for their child by always taking the child's side against everything. My child, you know, I'm married to a school teacher, so she knows how this works. <laughs> My child would never steal. Here's all the stuff he stole today. Um, he, that's not him, somebody made him do it. You know, that kind of thing. That's not good for the child, that's not love. They think it's love, but it's not love because it's a denial of what's best. So what's best may involve speaking truth, it usually does, having hard conversations, uh, sometimes even saying goodbye 
for now kind of a thing. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, the love chapter, it says, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices in the truth. It's really interesting how it contrasts unrighteousness with the truth there. Paul does that. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, sin. It rejoices in the truth. The truth is first. So that other kind of love is not love as the Bible defines it. And in Peter's case, he's directly denying what his Lord has spoken. Verse 23 says about Jesus, it says, but he turned, starts to describe his physical actions. So um, you have the impression that Jesus wasn't really looking at Peter when Peter was chewing him out. Maybe Peter was behind him and Jesus was facing away or Jesus was looking off to the side while Peter's yelling in his, in his ear or whatever it is. But um, he, he turns and in Mark's gospel it gives another little interesting bit of detail. In Mark chapter 8 verse 33 it says, he turning around and seeing his disciples. So as he's turning to Peter, the whole crew sort of comes into view and they're listening. This is like a really teachable moment for Jesus for all of them because what Peter's done is so wrong it's so horribly wrong. So he sees them all, and in verse 23, he says something they all need to hear. He turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. That is one of the most profound sentences in the Bible, especially in terms of our own personal relationship with the Lord, our walk, our sanctification. What are our interests? Are our interests God's interests or man's interests? So I think you should come back to these words every now and then and kind of camp on them and think about them because this really needs to flow through us, this whole idea, whose interests am I serving? And there can be a lot of churchy things that are serving man's interests and not God's interests. We really have to know what we're doing and why and whose interests we're serving. So soon, so soon after Peter's incredible confession of Christ's divinity and lordship, he's acting on behalf of Satan, the same man. So we better not be too proud to realize that at one moment or in one situation, we might be exemplifying the Christian experience with great excellence and faith and all of that, and the next moment, or in a different situation, literally be serving the devil. I hope you hear what I'm saying. We have to fear that about ourselves. We have to be really careful. And Peter wasn't con consciously serving the devil. He wasn't thinking, well, now that I've confessed Christ, I'll serve the devil. He wasn't thinking that way. <laughs> He's just showing what he thinks is a protection of Jesus. No, that can't happen to you. We won't let that happen to you. That's not going to happen to you. I don't think we generally are consciously serving the devil when we blow it. We, we, we act on our own wisdom, though, contrary to what is clearly revealed in Scripture as wisdom. That's where we get in trouble. Then we're serving the enemy of God instead of God. And we can do both on the same day. So the words kind of sting, don't they? Get behind me, Satan. I mean, that's pretty brutal. Why is he being so harsh? Because this is really serious. And they all need to hear it. 
So he uses Peter as an example of how personal feelings can serve Satan when, when the truth is not the core or the center. Christ gives the truth. What he said was the truth. That's what's going to happen. And to go against that was completely wrong. It was satanic, actually. What would, what would Satan want Jesus to do in terms of what Jesus had said is going to happen, his suffering at the hands of the scribes and Pharisees and dying and rising? What would Satan want him to do? Not go there. Why would Satan want Jesus to avoid suffering? Because his suffering is purchasing the salvation of all people, right? It's all those who believe in him. It's, 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 this grand, it's the greatest of miracles, Christ going to the cross. So yeah, Satan wouldn't want that. Remember in the garden how Jesus asked the Father that if it was possible to let the cup pass from him? The plan he came to serve was to take the weight of human sin, the sin of the whole world on himself and bear it as a punishment. So yeah, it's bad being crucified. That's one of the most horrible ways to die. It, it was infinitely beyond that in his experience. He was taking the judgment of God upon himself for all the sins of the world. And he recoiled at the horror of that. If there's another way, if there's any other way, Let's do it a different way. And the Father says, there's no other way. Okay. Your will, not mine. Your will, not mine. Right? Remember that? Human beings really can't conceive of the suffering that Jesus went through. So Satan would say, you want to fix the world? Use your power now. You don't have to do that cross thing. You can, you can fix the world now. You can be the king without a cross. You can skip the suffering altogether and make the world yours. Exercise your power. God wants you to suffer. I don't want you to suffer. God's the one that wants you to suffer. And that's very much the temptation Jesus had already faced when he met with Satan in the wilderness. Remember that? Matthew 4, 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said, all these things I will give to you if you just bow down and worship me. You can have the crown without the cross is the way it's often said. And here's Peter saying exactly the same thing. That will never happen to you. So Peter is literally suggesting that Jesus should overthrow the plan of God before the foundation of the world to redeem fallen mankind. The greatest act of God, Peter would throw over because of his own personal affection for Jesus' safety. Man's interests. So, that, so Peter isn't trying to overthrow all that. He doesn't even really know about all that. But Jesus knows that if he accepts Peter's advice or his satanic declaration that that will never happen, right? Peter doesn't understand the significance of it yet, but he's actively opposing Jesus. And on this subject, he would be inadvertently, not knowing, but inadvertently denying salvation to us, to all of us. And it's a satanic thing to turn against what was clearly said by God. It's the greatest error of all to turn against the cross because that's the centrality of our redemption at the cross there. That's where the price 
was paid. You know, have you noticed how, um, I mean, I noticed this more than 20 years ago, that every time Easter rolls around and Christmas rolls around, major media um, outlets find a way to attack the validity of it. They always find some scholar or latest things. It's usually somebody who's been around for years, but they pick them up and suddenly kind of do a time magazine cover thing about what, did Jesus really die on the cross? Those kind of things. And there's always a questionable thing like that. Well, that happened again this Easter. The, the New York Times, which is just openly Christian. No, it's not. Um, <laughs> but, but here they, they decided to interview a, a, a Christian theologian, a, a very high-placed seminary uh, president. Wow, the New York Times, wow. So they found uh, Serene Jones. She's the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York, and um, she's what you call a progressive Christian. What could be better than progress in Christianity? What a wonderful thing. And, and uh, the, the, it was an op-ed kind of thing, and one of their top guys, Nicholas Kristof, he asked her, he said, do you think of Easter as a literal flesh and blood resurrection? Because I have problems with that. The interviewer said that. I have problems with that. She said, well, you know, when you look at the Gospels, the stories are all over the place. I mean, there's no resurrection story in Mark. It's just an empty tomb. And those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. But that empty tomb symbolizes that the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified or killed. No. <laughs> She's wrong about that. She's factually wrong about the Gospels, for one thing, and, and it's interpretively inc insane. I mean, to, if you read the Bible about what it says about the resurrection, uh, that's not it. It's not about the ultimate love in our lives not being able to be crushed or anything like that. It's about Jesus rising from the dead as proof of the salvation of our sins, which he bore on the cross. Anyway, the, the uh, questioner goes on. He says... Uh, about her rejecting the real reality of the resurrection, he says, but without a physical resurrection, isn't there a risk that we are left with just the crucifixion? Which is a really good question. It's a very insightful question. Give him credit for the question. She says, crucifixion's not something that God is orchestrating from upstairs. The pervasive idea that an abusive godfather who sends his own kid to the cross so God could forgive people is nuts. For me, the cross is an, an enactment of our human hatred. But what happens on Easter is the triumph of love in the midst of suffering. Isn't that reason for hope? No, it actually isn't. <laughs> so the gospel, according to a seminary president, is nuts. It's nuts. So this woman, she's an ordained minister. Her response... Um, her, her resume, if you read her resume, it says she's the 16th president of the historic Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York, the first woman to head the 179-year-old interdenominational seminary. Jones came to Union after 17 years at Yale University where she was the Titus Street professor of theology at the Divinity School and the chair of the Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies in the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. Now we're starting to get it. <laughs> And it doesn't say it on a resume, but it should say, and she serves Satan. <laughs> that should be like the, the last little thing there. Because she does, that's what she believes. And she's training ministers, hundreds and hundreds of ministers every year to go to churches and share these wonderful truths. Now, I'm sure that she sees her role in life 
as a liberator of mankind from foolishness, from uh, superstition, and she's promoting tolerance and love. I'm sure that's what's in her heart. But she is robbing of all of her students and anybody that's gonna be shepherded by her students, she's robbing them of the salvation that Christ achieved through his blood on the cross, which was an incredible miracle. It's the greatest of all miracles, that God would become a man. It's even the most beautiful story. She doesn't even see that. It's the most beautiful story that God would send his son into the world, that God would become incarnate to live like us and die a horrible death that we deserve to set us free from judgment. That's the most beautiful story ever. And she thinks it's hideous. It's a a parental abuse. So she mocks the most beautiful idea in the history of the world. J.C. Ryle, the the Anglican bishop in the 1800s, uh, he knew people like her, not that weird, but um, that denied the resurrection, denied the atonement of Christ. He was a bishop in the Anglican church. There were a lot of people like that. And he wrote uh, about Jesus' words to Peter in Matthew 16 here. He said, stronger words than these never fell from our Lord's lips. The error that drew from so loving a savior such a stern rebuke to such a true disciple must have been a mighty error indeed. The truth is that our Lord would have us regard the crucifixion as the central truth of Christianity. Right views of his vicarious death and the benefits resulting from it lie at the foundation of Bible religion. Never let us forget this, he says. On matters of church government or the form of worship, men may differ from us and yet reach heaven in safety. On the matter of Christ's atoning death as the way of peace, truth is only one. If we are wrong here, we are ruined forever. Error on many other points is only a skin disease. Error about Christ's death is a disease at the heart. Here let us take our stand. Let nothing move us from this ground. The sum of all our hopes must be that Christ has died for us. 1 Thessalonians 5.10 Give up that doctrine and we have no solid hope at all. And he's exactly right. He's exactly right. Now, like I said, Peter didn't know he was serving Satan, but the sharp rebuke by Jesus drives home how serious this issue of his crucifixion and resurrection are. You don't have to consciously serve Satan to speak his words. Peter was serving really himself. I don't want to see you die. I don't want you taken from me. He didn't want to lose Jesus and he couldn't accept the idea of a future without him. So Jesus' words to him are very penetrating and we have to take them to heart. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Jesus was God's son by Peter's own understanding, his own declaration. He believed it and he declared it and he was commended by Jesus for it and rewarded by Jesus for it. But then after that, Jesus gave the apostles this prophecy about what was coming, a revelation, a word from God, and Peter didn't like it. Have you ever read something in the Bible you didn't like? Well, what's your duty? Change your likes. That's your duty. 
I don't like that. You know, I've, I've talked to several people. I, all those animals being killed in the Old Testament, that's so mean. I don't like that. Why did God do that? Well, you know, it, it is a bloody mess. And it's just a tiny picture of what you deserve for your sins before God. All that blood. So that's why how you need to think about it. The wages of sin is death. And those animals couldn't even take away our sin, but they pictured one who could and who did. Don't set your mind on cattle's interests instead of God's interests. The interest of a goat instead of God. There's so many ways people do this. So many ways. Peter let his feelings overwhelm his commitment to the Word of God. Don't do that. We must not do that. We live in an age of feelings. You know, our culture is becoming controlled by feelings. I mean, totally. The truth isn't even, oh, we don't believe in truth anymore, right? That's why people use expressions like your truth or my truth. I mean, like, like truth isn't real, which is completely bizarre, but that's what, how modern people think. I used to call our era the time in which, you know, there's the age of exploration, the age of faith, the age of invention, all these kind of things, the industrial age and all that kind of stuff. I used to call our age the age of entertainment because that's what people live for. But I think we really maybe should call it the age of feelings because what does entertainment do? It's all about feelings. You go to the movies to feel things. You listen to music to feel things. You follow bands to feel. It's all about feelings. It's not about wisdom or insight or truth or anything like that. It's all about feelings. So yeah, that's really what the age, this is the age of feeling, isn't it? Feelings rule everything. But a Christian should never live by the spirit of the age, whatever it is, because it's always something human, not divine. There's something higher than how I feel about things. And our feelings must be bound to the word of God. We can't sit in judgment on God's word. Who are you to do that? Who are you to sit in judgment on God's word? I mean, seriously. Tiny little you. Sinful little you. Your entire life goal as a Christian is to align your heart, your thoughts, your loves as closely with God's heart thoughts and loves as you can. You need to be as aligned with Him. That's your goal as a Christian, to cultivate that, to, ch to change your heart, to mold your heart to be like His. And Jesus is telling you something really important in verse 23. He's telling you whose interests matter the most. And it's not yours. Well, somebody has to look out for number one. I've got news, he's number one. <laughs> Don't ever call yourself number one. You're at least num number five million and sixty-three or something. You're not number one. God is number one. And he will look out for you as a loving father, but he will at the same time order the world to accomplish his divine holy purposes. I want to show you two texts, uh, one from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, you can turn there if you want or just listen. But Jesus is speaking. Do you remember this? Do not worry then what we will eat or what we will drink or what will we wear for clothing. For the Gentiles eagerly seek for all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But first seek His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So what's he saying? Prioritize your entire life around God's interests. And then he'll take care of you because he's a loving father. 
Here's another text, Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. God will provide for you as a heavenly father and nothing can separate you from the love of Christ even if it means we're put to death in this world for him. We're put to death for Jesus' sake all day long. Those churches that got blown up on Easter, Christians slaughtered in Nigeria two weeks ago, shot to death. Both these things are true. God is your loving heavenly father who will look out for your needs if you put him first and you might well be taken to the slaughter like sheep to the, sh- to the slaughter. We are in a cosmic war. There's a rebellion that's gone on and is still going on and there are opposing sides and one side is purely good and the other side is very evil and it can get rough. It can get really rough. So we're on a war footing, if you will. We fight principalities and powers, Paul says, and and that being who the Bible calls the God of this world, little g. The world follows him. They believe his lies, and he has lies for everyone. He has lies for every personality type, every bent. The father of lies has lies. And God, God has a way of using the suffering of Christians to shame the lies, to to expose them and reveal the truth. And the suffering of Christians exposes the rebellion of mankind. Christianity by far is the most persecuted religion in the world, by far, everywhere. Why? Because the whole world's in rebellion against God. And it's right that that be seen. It glorifies God. The suffering of Christians exposes the deep wickedness of this world. So we are soldiers understanding that the call may come at any time, the call to suffer in some way for Jesus' sake. And we go willingly because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That's the promise that we have. Most of our battles are not that grand. Most of our battles are day-to-day kind of stuff. We battle with Satan's little lies, right? about ourselves, about our families, about our hopes and dreams, about what happiness is. Satan loves to get people to believe the wrong thing about happiness, especially in a culture where we pursue happiness as a constitutional right. We battle, as Christians, ideas that that dominate a fallen culture. We battle our own preferences and prejudices. We battle our lusts. We battle our pride. Paul told the Galatians, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Well, what do you please? Well, a Christian pleases to serve the Lord. They're already, that new birth gives us that. We're already God-directed. We want to please him. But our flesh battles that whole thing. So even inside of us, there's this battle going on. 
an internal battle. You know, there's the famous triad, our enemies, you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We fight them, Paul says, by walking in the Spirit and cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against those things there is no law. That's what walking in Christ produces in us. And in Matthew's passage here today, Jesus gets even more foundational talking about the successful Christian walk. It's a crucial part of saving faith and acknowledging the lordship of Christ over your life. The fruit of the Spirit depends on this great choice you have to make, and that's in verse 24, which we'll kind of wrap up with here. Jesus said to the disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, Peter, you've got these ideas in your head. You've got to deny them. They're contrary to what God just told you, the revealed word. From the very beginning of our Christian life, there must be a willingness to deny self. When I became a Christian, I'm no longer under the authority of myself. I'm under the authority of Christ, and myself has to be denied. His will and my will are going to clash sometimes, and I am obligated to serve His will, no matter what it costs. And it's hard, because there's a profound amount of self-love that's deep set within all of us. It's much more, than, much more than just self-preservation or things like that. It's this willfully setting ourselves against other interests. We advance ourselves, and we've got to deny that. I think it was George Whitfield, the great preacher, who said, Oh, this self-love, this self-will. Lord Jesus, may thine blessed spirit purge it from our hearts. Because even a great man like that knew how deep his self-will was. We all have it. We all have it. When a person becomes a Christian, he or she does not, does not simply add Jesus to one's life. And if the gospel is preached in that way, people aren't hearing the right message. Because that's not what it is. Add Jesus to your life. It is an addition, of course, a huge addition of Jesus into your life, but there's a subtraction side of it which is to deny yourself. It's not just an affirmation, it's a renunciation at the same time. You're turning from something to something. Think about it, you cannot affirm Christ and then not renounce other things because the very thing you're affirming is Jesus is Lord. And if he's Lord, everything he hates, we have to deny. We have to turn against. Some of those things that we renounce are things that are outside of us. Our previous religion, for example. If I worship Zeus, I've got to give him up. Or Allah, or Odin, or Thor. Well, when Thor's a superhero, he's okay, right? But um, <laughs> Krishna, our ancestors. You can't worship your ancestors anymore. There's the Chinese thing. Can't do that. Those things have to go. That's idolatry, all of it. We renounce, we renounce idolatries. We renounce ideologies that are opposed to Christ. Modern ideologies, communism, racism, ethnocentric, twisted thinking, philosophies, all kinds of injustice. 
Whatever is inconsistent with Christ, we deny them, we renounce them, especially in ourselves, but even in the world around us. We have to renounce our previous selves. The Bible calls it putting off the old man. You know what, even when you're 12 years old, you have to put off the old man, because you're born in sin, and that's what it's talking about, your sinful nature, that bent towards sin. You've gotta, so there's external things and internal things. There's ideas and our own desires and lusts or loves that are misdirected. When we're born again, our, our affections begin to change. Things that we used to think were great, sinful, that now they look really tawdry and uh, ugly. Virtue looks good. The Lord Jesus is the most worthy object of our affection and we love him. We know that, but our flesh kicks against us sometimes and self rears its ugly head. So we have to say no to ourselves. That's the challenge. Well, there's no time to go deeper into that this morning. So we'll come back next week and we'll um, consider more carefully this command to deny ourselves. We'll think about that a little bit more. Thank you for listening. You're very, very kind. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, help us not be like Peter. Not at his worst moment. Let us be like Peter at his best moments. But not when he let his heart run away with thoughts and words and actions that don't align with your holy and perfect will. Don't let us be like that. Help us to listen to the truth and embrace the truth and live the truth. Make us men and women that you want us to be. We ask in Christ's name, amen.